0: I'm Danny Fava. I am the group head of product innovation for InvestNet. InvestNet is a technology company serving financial advisors and really seeking to democratize financial advice and make it accessible to more people. I'm joined here by Anthony Pompliano, better known probably by most of you as Pomp. Do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. Whoa. All right. We're going to really get started. entrepreneur and investor uh, have invested in about 200 early stage companies and uh, now own a number of different businesses uh, across uh, tech and uh, crypto.
0: A podcaster. Oh yeah, we do have the
1: pod. (laughs) The podcast is not my main focus, but I think that's what everyone knows. So uh, the podcast uh, is, uh, I think we got 25 million downloads last year. So pretty uh, pretty good.
0: Pretty popular. So uh, bank banks failing was not on our agenda when we uh, created it. So we're gonna try to stick a little bit to our agenda, talk about what, what we plan to talk about, but we will for sure touch on uh, the crypto market, what's happening inside of banking today, um, and we'll take questions from the audience. So as you guys are listening and sitting there, you know, think of your questions, because it's a unique opportunity to ask Pomp your questions directly. You can ask me questions They're gonna questions ask you too. questions. I'm just gonna <laughs> redirect them to you. Okay, so we're gonna start by talking about innovation. Let's just talk about innovation and how innovation moves through the market, typically, historically, and in most cases. When things are innovated in the technology sector, the financial services sector, which we're both in, and even the medical industry, what we tend to see is that innovations really start with governments and nation states and then they move down into corporations and eventually they make their way to main street that's the way most innovations kind of move through the market Um, and we'll talk about some of those and and you know the, the list is easy you can come up with right now some innovations that you can think of which probably have moved in that way from the computer you're holding to the smartphone to dna sequencing and and all of these innovations kind of moved Hop down through the market. We'll talk about crypto and how that's opposite and why that's opposite, but let's start just talking about innovation and um, in its natural kind of movement. Do you think that innovations moving in that direction are, are good? Why do you think they move in that direction naturally? Talk to us about some of that.
1: Yeah, innovation is this like really weird thing where um, it's become like cool to talk about it now. Uh, it used to not be. Um, And if you think of what innovation really is, it's problem solving. And if you break down from a first principle standpoint, like why has innovation always come from those nation states, usually the military, and then go to the corporations and then the individuals is because to solve these problems, you needed money, right? And if you think of the internet, maybe as the best example, like me as an individual, if I go back and teleport to 1950, 1960, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough connections, I don't have enough resources to actually say, hey, let's create this distributed internet thing. And so who does? Well, nation states, militaries, things like that. Then the second piece of it is not just money, it's also talent. And so in order to collect enough people who have the knowledge, the experience, uh, and the ideas to actually build something like that, you've got to be able to get a large organization to do it. And so one of the interesting parts of it is, uh, well, corporations have a lot of money. They have a lot of ability to recruit talent as well. But usually what happens with a true innovation is there is no obvious commercial use case for it yet. And so you can do R&D, you can try to create this. But if you really look at some of the kind of um, what I would consider like the platform innovations, things like the Internet, they weren't doing it to make money. Right. they were trying to solve a problem without an obvious commercial use case. And so that's where the nation states historically have found that to be uh, pretty effective. When we talk about crypto, uh, actually the f- idea of not trying to make money made it possible to invert that. But I think that it's all about how much money do you have, how much talent do you have, and then like, what is the reason why you're trying to solve this? And that's why nation states have had a monopoly on innovation for a long time.
0: Excellent insight um, and totally agree. And some innovations I still don't think really have a strong use case, but have still been adopted. Something like DNA sequencing, like 23ME, is not really a strong use case, but has been adopted by a good percentage of the population. But let's talk about something like the internet, which you, you rightfully said, you know, is this innovation that you know had no use case, now you can't live without it. Um, the internet has, made, has also gone and democratized other products and services in and of itself. right? The internet, the internet became democratized and then it started democratizing other things such as the stock market. The stock market was not accessible to the everyday main street person until the internet was born and we can now trade stocks online, um, not only trade stocks. There continues to be democratization in the stock market and financial services. You can now buy things like fractional shares of art through Masterworks or fractional shares of classic cars through Rally Road. All of this democratization has happened inside of financial services. Can you tell us a little bit about, do you think that's been a good move? Do you think that the everyday common person should have unabridged access to every investment out there? And what does that mean?
1: So the democratization basically comes from bundling humans together, right? If you think about what the internet did is the internet just created connectivity. So it used to be, um, there's a famous book uh, called the rise and fall of American growth and it basically covers like 1870 to 1940. And it talks about at the beginning of that time period, uh, every single home was completely separate from every other home. So there was no connectivity of sewage, electricity, water, telecommunications, et cetera. And in fact, there wasn't even really roads, right? So literally, you were on your own. Your family that lived in that house had to farm, had to protect itself. Like, you had to do everything. So you were a generalist that was isolated from everyone else. If you fast forward through that time period, we got connectivity. And so now we had telephones, we had electricity, we had running water, we had like all these different things. And so what it allowed for was specialization within societies. And so if you take that same exact idea and you say, okay, now I'll do it in the digital world. That's basically what happened. Right? Historically, we all had like a landline and you could call each other, but there was, no, there was not nearly as much connectivity as there is now with the internet. We all have cell phones walking around, all this type of stuff. And so when you bring that into the financial services world, as you bundle people together, you're just trying to reduce friction, right? You just keep cutting it down. And you know, if you go back you know, 20 years, there's a bunch of people who made money because it was hard to do things. And so if you talk to someone over the age of maybe 50, they're like, oh, I call my broker. Right, They pick up the phone, they call a broker. Uh, Great, somebody was making a lot of money, but then somebody came along and was like, why don't we just automate this? And so if you really think about the last maybe 70, 80 years, the theme is automation. We don't call it automation, we don't think of it that way, but that's all we've been doing, is the computer automated away a broker, a computer automated away the bank teller, a computer automated away all these things. And so if you take that to the extreme, like buying fractional shares in a baseball card in a classic car, uh, in a piece of art. Yes, of course that is going to happen. What I do think is, uh, lost in that conversation is people in their twenties specifically that are like, Oh, I'm spending $10 and I bought, you know, one tenth of this baseball card. Like maybe you should just take the $10 and like, put it in index fund. stop trying to like day trade on, you know, fractional shares of of a baseball card and go try to make more money. And so I do wonder how much like the gamification of some of this stuff has distracted people from how do you actually build true wealth? How do you actually put yourself in a good position? And instead it's like, Oh, the game is to like trade versus the game is to follow timeless investing principles. Um, but, you know, look, there's some people who they'll show me their $75 portfolio and how it's outperformed the market. And, you know, if they get some zeros on the end of it over time, then maybe that those returns will hold. But I, I think that there's pros and cons with all these new technologies.
0: So the, the interesting thing you made me think while you were talking there was about diversification. And initially, at first blush, you would think that increasing access, democratizing access to these things would actually increase your likelihood that you would diversify your your investments, right? You have more access to more things, you can buy more things and therefore you will spread out your investments. Seems logical, but in fact, what you're saying is that we've seen through this increased accessibility more concentration in things that perhaps, you you should diversify, you should maybe buy an index fund or you should maybe, how do you solve that
1: problem? Well, I think most people And it's hard to like put like a generalization on it. But I would say from what I've seen, most people uh, spend too much time diversifying and they don't spend enough time on like true wealth creation. Right. So a good example is like if you show up and you're like, oh, I read that, you know, Warren Buffett likes diversification. And so uh, I've gone ahead and I own one share of these 10 stocks. I own one fractional share of all this other stuff. Uh, I have cash. I have bonds. I have all this. And you're like, you have three dollars in bonds right? Like like it, it, you can't make an actual return. And it goes back to the timeless uh, phrase of concentration builds wealth, diversification protects it. And so you want to know those principles, but understanding when to employ certain strategies uh, based on wealth, on uh, annual income, all these different things is important. And so when we get into diversification, uh, one of the things I, I always remind, especially young people about is diversification can just mean you have your investment portfolio and you have your income stream. And if you have two income streams plus an investment portfolio, maybe that's all the diversification you need. And so having a fully concentrated investment portfolio is enough to get you to whatever goal you want. And so I also always go back and I say, uh, for every person who in 21 was telling me how smart they were and they were making all this money, if you now go and you look at the portfolios, like most of those people were just buying highly leveraged you know, kind of exposure to the market. And so when the Fed comes in and destroys demand, those are the things that go down the most. And so I think that you have to uh, kind of learn initially. Staying in the game is actually the most important thing over a long period of time, not necessarily how much money can you make in a single six months, 12 months. It's like, can you do this for, you know, if you're 20, 50 years, and then that's where, where you can generate true wealth.
0: So when you democratize all of these things, I think what's missing is really education, which I, I look at you and what you're doing on, out in social media on YouTube as democratizing that information and bringing education to Main Street in a way that's accessible and understandable and that will help the, the Main Street take advantage of all of these products. Um, is everybody out there doing that? On
1: <laughs> well, again, blessing and curse, right? The fact that like I have a TV studio on my cell phone and now I can compete with everyone else. Um, in one view, uh, that's great because now you can democratize the information. On the second view, the cost of producing that information is so low that like I'm sure many of you here have seen the TikTok 23 year old who's like, "Let me tell you how to you know become a millionaire," and you're like you're doing that in your childhood basement, right? Or like bedroom, like maybe you're not the person who'd be giving financial advice. Um, At the same time, uh, I think it's exposed on the other side, the mainstream media, like once you see that the reporter's just a content creator, you can't unsee it, right? And so guess what? Like I have a email I write every day. If that was published on CNBC.com, it'd be the number one article every single day. That's how big the audience is. But I'm not a journalist right? I write things and like, I say, I think, I believe, here's my opinion, right? It's a very different view of the market than let's say a journalist who sits there and they're going to go, they're going to interview people, they're going to fact check it, they're going to do this. So it's not an either or, I think it's like you actually need all of the participants. But what I do think ends up happening is when you get this free market of ideas, the meritocracy takes over. And if there's anything we've learned over the last three years, is that like, the people who thought they had a monopoly on the story, the angle, the narrative have been completely wrong, but it's because markets are complex. I don't think that the alternative view has been completely right either, right? It's like, we are talking about people who are paid a lot of money, take hedge fund managers as an example, they're paid millions of dollars a year to predict what's gonna happen in the market. There's a lot of them that lost money last year, right? So like, even with the economic incentive, even with all this stuff, I think just understanding like, Democratizing information is powerful and having multiple perspectives is good, but just because people now have a low cost to produce the information doesn't necessarily increase accuracy. And so it just puts back the self-reliance on the individual, like do the work yourself, be self-reliant, do your own research, do all this stuff. And ultimately, I think people end up learning more that way too.
0: So how, I'm gonna bring in um, a bad word for a second and talk about Uh-oh. regulation or ask you about regulation. <laughs> the regulation is good. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about what, in, in everything that you just said, accessibility, democratization of information, um, what people are allowed to say and do, where does regulation fit in? When is it right to bring in regulation? And like, how do we find that right balance of, yes, accessibility is a good thing under certain constraints with the right information and then you layer on this regulatory aspect to it. What, how do you get that right?
1: It's impossible, right? I mean, it's the short answer. It is literally impossible. So again, go to the extremes of the argument to kind of prove the point. In one sense, people say uh, we need more regulation and more regulation will lead to safer markets, it will lead to uh, better information, and it will create um, an environment where people have confidence to invest. Okay, use public disclosures as an example. The pro argument is like, yeah, we probably want companies that are publicly traded to disclose certain information. That sounds good. On the other hand, there are literally public company CEOs who recently were found guilty of committing fraud Right? If you look at in the case of Nikola as an example. And so like even with the public disclosures, even with all the regulation, even with all the stuff, they still were able to do it. Now, it was uncovered later, but there's a lot of people who made and lost money along the way, even though the regulation was in place. If you didn't kind of swing to the other extreme, take something like KYC, which I think a lot of people in the legacy financial world are like, oh, KYC is good. Know your customer. We want to stop criminals. Uh... They haven't stopped the criminals, but they've taken all of your personal data and they now store it. And what we found out is not only are they not stopping the bad actors, but they are creating these honeypots where people can go and hack that information. And if you can't actually accomplish the goal, but you're putting people at risk, there's a strong argument that they're actually creating more problems rather than less with that type of regulation. And so it's this weird thing because like, I think everyone in society agrees, like, we don't want terrorists using funds through our banking system. We don't want money laundering. We don't want, like there's like a bunch of these things on a hit list where we're like, okay, we all agree like these are bad things. How do you stop it? Well, actually maybe one of the best ways to stop it is just create radical transparency. So when we talk about things like Bitcoin, well guess what criminals don't wanna use to do any of this? Bitcoin, it's an immutable public ledger. And so what's happened is by simply saying there are no regulations, but there is full transparency, they run away from that thing and they're actually running from Bitcoin into the legacy financial system. And so, you know, you can Google around and find very quickly the banks who have facilitated some of this stuff. I don't think there's like a banker who's like, you know what? You're definitely a Mexican cartel. I definitely want to help you move this money. I think usually what ends up happening is they're trying to do the right thing. They're saying, Hey, look, we're going to process this transaction. Let's flag it though, just in case it's a bad thing. And If you have millions and millions of transactions every week, there's probably going to be some bad ones, right? And so should we rely on the bank to self-administer that and figure that out? Or is it better with the democratization of the internet, just make it all transparent and let the internet figure it out? Because the internet still is undefeated in figuring this stuff out. And in many cases, what happens is the internet actually figures it out and then reports it to regulators. And then they go and they end up actually enforcing on it.
0: So regulators as an enforcer. I also want to say something about KYC and overregulation from from where I'm sitting, which is, you know, at a publicly traded company that is trying to democratize financial advice and put it in the hands of more people, it's really expensive like regulation over regulation KYC it's very expensive and w- what tends to happen is you want to bring these products to the mass market right so that they can benefit as many people as possible but there's a cost to doing that and the you know higher the the more KYC and these types of functions that you have to do the higher the cost which means you can't go down into the markets you want to get to to really benefit people because you know, you're dealing with these, the the cost issue on one side of the balance sheet.
1: Well, just take like uh, the accreditation laws. I mean, the accreditation laws are an absolute national scandal, right? We literally took the idea, you have to be rich to make money in America, and we wrote it into law. And then we did it with this like fake, uh, like virtue signaling saying like, it's it's for your own good. Why is it for your own good, right? If you're old enough and able to go gamble, or buy a lottery ticket, why can't you buy a stock? Why are we preventing people, and and I would argue, discriminating against people based on wealth in order to have access to things that can help them build wealth, not waste their money, right? And so like, you get in this weird world where it's like, yeah, it's easy to sit up here and critique things and be like, oh, in hindsight, like this was stupid, this was stupid, this was stupid. I don't think people go into it with bad intentions. It's just like, it's complex, it's hard. There's a lot of different rules that get created as a government and as a nation, I think that if we could just simply like quickly identify, hey, we made a rule, we thought it was for uh, good intentions, there's some sort of bad knock-on effect, okay, let's, re- let's reverse that, or let's change it, let's iterate on it. That's how I think you quickly get to the right yeah. solutions. It's just like, you know, the government doesn't exactly move fast. Yeah.
0: And what tends to happen is they usually end up double-downing, double make another regulation, which ultimately makes it just a sea of regulation that's hard to figure out. Um, and you ever read the tax
1: code, (laughs) that's my favorite one. It's like, there's so many, did you guys know that there's things in the tax code that are like, uh, you know, how heavy your car is, you can get a write-off, right? Uh, You can employ your kids, literally, you can employ a six-year-old and get like a $12,000 write-off. You can, uh, if you have a house and you put livestock in the yard, you can get a write-off. Do you think that somebody who was rich came up with that rule or do you think that someone who has no money came up with those rules, right? So it's all lobbying. It's all like all these things. By the way, like that is how they use the incentive system. But I don't know all the rules and I'm sure nobody else here does. Even the lawyers and the accountants are like, oh, I got to go look it up. Let me go Google it, right? And so it's just hard to, uh, to navigate. But that is the product of now, you know, over 100 years of them coming up with all this stuff.
0: So how let, let's get into you're one of the world's experts on crypto and you haven't mentioned I'm, like you haven't mentioned in the last ten minutes all that much. I Which thought we great. were going
1: to talk about it. <laughs>
0: we're going to talk about it. So all of these sort of um, you know the top down innovation and how it's moved through uh, the market and gotten to Main Street. Crypto is quite the opposite. It was actually created to solve a problem, um, and now we see it. Crypto, blockchain, moving in the opposite direction, moving toward companies, toward institutions, nation states. Um, talk to us about the origin of crypto. Why? What problems it's it's solving, and kind of what's happened since its creation.
1: Yeah, I think there's probably three pieces. Uh, One's like philosophical, one's economic, and then the third is like a kind of innovation story. So from an innovation standpoint, like now it's just possible, right? You needed the internet to be built. You needed to be able to actually get uh, enough of a network effect. You needed to have email created. You needed to have, you know, proof of work, all these different pieces of technology uh, that Satoshi Nakamoto was able to put together. Uh, From a philosophy standpoint, like make no doubt about it, technologists are assaulting Wall Street and they're winning. Right? If you talk to every single bank CEO, if you go and you read their public statements, if you go ahead and you look at what they're saying on television, they're all claiming to be technology companies now. Like They're like, we're not banks, we're a technology company. Oh, we're going to have a consumer facing this. We're going to do this. Look at our innovation. Like, look, look at all these things we're doing. And it's because ultimately, if they do not transition to become technology companies, Silicon Valley will kill Wall Street. And like, that sounds kind of crazy, but if you look at why that is... It's, again, because these tools have democratized access, because they've lowered the barrier, they've been able to uh, increase the number of people. When you bring more and more people into the financial system, the number of assets increases, all that type of stuff. And then the last thing is there's economics behind it. Satoshi did this and didn't get paid, right? There was no kind of commercial benefit to it. And when you look at putting those three things together, it basically takes someone who is willing to create a technological breakthrough who wanted to go after the incumbents, but wasn't worried about the economic incentive for doing it. And so there's not very many people who could do that, one, but also two is also to have the humility to walk away. Because if we knew who Satoshi was today, I believe that Bitcoin would not be nearly as successful, right? Because guess what? both sides of the political aisle, all the reporters, they would be yelling and screaming about, oh my God, the right wing Bitcoin, or the you know the Democrat woke this Bitcoin, or what, like they would just try to politicize it. They would try to go after the creator. They would try to do all this stuff. We don't know who it is, and that's a huge advantage. And so when you think of kind of how it was created, an individual doesn't have the ability to go to the military and be like, hey, psst, look what I created, right? So what did that person do? They emailed their friends (laughs) and people started to use it. And then it spread and word of mouth took over and all this stuff. And and so this like bottoms up approach um, ultimately I think is a much better way to do it because now what you're doing is you're empowering people, then the corporations and eventually the nation states. But remember that corporations are just made up of people. Nation states are just made up of people. Um, And so Yes, people have definitely benefited on an individual level more so than than those other uh, groups, but I think that that will end up being the reason why Bitcoin is highly successful, not a negative, right? And and my guess is that people are going to learn from that. They're going to create more open source software and they're going to kind of replicate a lot of the, the ingredients here for other parts of the economy.
0: You know, I tried to come up with a couple of examples of things that have gone bottoms up the way that crypto and blockchain have, you know, from a network of people, somebody who emailed their friends to start using this thing. And I I had such a hard time coming up with examples. The only other thing I could think of that was even close was social media that you know, it started as a network of people, now is being adopted by corporations and governments to you know, utilize the platform to amplify their message. What needs to be true for institutions to want to adopt a new technology or a new process that was developed by Main Street, and why do they do it? Do they do it to, do they want to, Control it, shut it down. Do they really, truly want to utilize it for their benefit? Why do they? Why do they want to adopt these technologies?
1: So I have to caveat this. I'm a radical in my view of a company's purpose is to make money. That's it. Like they have no other purpose other than to make money. Uh, in today's society, that is not what a lot of people think. Um, and I think that ultimately drives why companies adopt technology, right? Because the companies that adopt technology for any other reason than solve their customer's problem and make money as the economic incentive, they don't last. And so we can go throughout history and look at all these companies who did all this, in hindsight, dumb things, and it was always because they lost focus on does this solve the customer's problem and can we make money doing it? And I think that what we've learned is that companies who stay focused on that mission end up actually being the most technological uh, and, and innovative, but also they end up being the most profitable and sustainable companies. And so I think that when it comes to something like Bitcoin, a lot of companies don't need to adopt it yet, right? Which like there's people in the Bitcoin community who they may not like that, but if you look at a company in the Western world, how many companies actually are in the business of money? Like not that many. Okay, finance there are, but outside of that, like not that many. Now there's an argument that maybe they should put it on their balance sheet, right, as as some sort of asset. The challenge with that is there's some accounting rules that make it difficult. There's a bunch of uh, capital gains tax treatment that makes it difficult if it goes up or it goes down. Um, And then also I think that there is uh, career risk, right? If you're the CEO of a company that's got, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars, billion dollars on your balance sheet and you do this and it goes well, you're actually not congratulated right? People are like, hey, stop doing crazy stuff, like you're lucky this one worked out. If it doesn't go well, you're fired, right? And so I think that really where you're going to see the adoption is actually where the the necessity is highest, and that tends to be outside the United States. And this is why you see corporations outside the US, this is why you see nation states outside the US starting to look at this stuff and embrace it, is because guess who needs it more than somebody in the United States? I don't know somebody who lives in a country where inflation's eighty percent year over year, or if you go to somewhere like Lebanon or Turkey, you wake up one day and literally the central bank just announced we're going to debase the currency by ninety percent two days from now, right? And you're like, wait, what? And so I think that there ends up being this like very weird dynamic in the United States where um, some people in the U.S. understand the non-economic benefits of Bitcoin, but most people in the U.S. just look at it as a speculation tool. That's important because it leads to growth of the user base. But in the U.S., the only thing Bitcoin really does right now is it's a great store of value, right? But, like, how many of you have bought something with Bitcoin in the last, I don't know, two days? Like, literally one person's hand went up, right? Guess why? The government punishes you if you do it. They tax you right? When I went to dinner last night, if I buy it in dollars, I just buy dinner and I tip the waiter or waitress and I leave. But if I bought it in Bitcoin, they would charge me 20% capital gains on using it. And the current president thinks that we should increase capital gains to 40%. So like when you look at it from that perspective, there's an economic incentive to just hold it. There's probably a reason why 70% of it in circulation hasn't moved in a year. Right? If people are financially incentivized, just hold it, use it as a store of value, and we'll figure out everything else later.
0: So now that you know, cryptocurrency is, is prevalent, every, corporations, some corporations are holding it on their balance sheet. Others are creating entire economies or companies based on transacting in the currency. Um, we do see a lot of confusion among the regulators. How do we control it? Who has the right to control it? you know what obviously there's control needed i mean we 've seen in the events of the past couple of months we 'd need some control and some regulations why are Why is the government getting it so wrong, or do you think they 're getting it so wrong now? If you do, why are they and do you think it has to do with what we started talking about, which is This was a product that was actually completely flipped upside down. It is not something that went top down, right? It wasn't created in a controlled environment and then brought down to the masses. Can you talk about um, that side of regulation?
1: So I don't think that the government wants to control Bitcoin. They want to control you, right? Right. If you think about the dollar, they control the monetary policy of the dollar, but the dollar is an inanimate object. If I put a dollar on the stage right now, we could yell at it, we could scream, we could pick it up, we could do it. But like, it's not a person, right? It's not a thing. Um, and so Bitcoin's the same, right? Bitcoin is controlled by the software. The monetary policy is outside of human control. But if you actually look at all the rules, it's about what you do with Bitcoin. It's about what your company does with Bitcoin, right? Right. And so what they're trying to regulate is not Bitcoin. They're trying to regulate you. Bitcoin is an unregulated asset in the same way that the dollar is an unregulated asset. right? They can't punish the dollar. They can't punish Bitcoin. But they can punish you. And so I think that that ends up changing the narrative a little bit of like, people are like, wait, hold on a second. Oh, this isn't a Bitcoin story. This is like, what are my freedoms? What are my abilities? What am I able to do? And then the other piece of it ends up being that... uh, I would separate out a couple of camps. So first we have to separate Bitcoin and everything else. Most of the other stuff, I think the government's getting it right. Like if you have a seed, like a pre-seed or a seed fundraising deck, and you're like, by the way, we're creating a token, you can call it shares, you can call it equity, you can call it, you can call whatever you want. But they're gonna have a real hard time saying like, nah, you're good, you don't have to comply with securities law, although you're out trying to fundraise. Right. So I think there there's like a whole camp that you can just kind of say, okay, this is probably going to end up being securities no matter how much people fight. The second thing is um, I think that there is a group of politicians who understand Bitcoin and what it stands for and they like that idea right? They they look at it and they say, Bitcoin is the most American technology. It is an asset that basically takes all of the ideals and values of the constitution, writes it into code and cannot be changed by anyone. It gives you private property rights. It allows you to express free speech, all these things. Those people tend to be more on the right and they tend to really care about constitutional values, things like that. There is then a group of politicians who see Bitcoin for what it is and they hate it. And they're like, Uh, There's a guy um, in California, Brad Sherman, who for years has been calling to ban ownership of Bitcoin in America because he sees it as a threat to the U.S. dollar. So when you look at it from that perspective, you're like, okay, you can look at it as a threat or you can look at it as the solution. Guess who didn't beg for bailouts in the last 18 months? There wasn't a single crypto company, not even Bitcoin, just like crypto in general. FTX went down. I didn't see a single person be like, oh, Uncle Sam, come save us, right? There's no FDIC insurance. And so you look at these two systems, and what you realize is one is actually built on self-reliance. One is literally built on the fact that, hey, I put tens of millions of dollars in a bank account, and the bank bought treasuries. Like, here's a part of the story that no one wants to really talk about. There are banks in the United States who have failed because they bet on America. Not good. They were buying treasuries. They were betting on America. And they failed because the central bank told them they were going to do something and didn't do it. That is a scandal. If the central bank comes to you and says, here is our outlook for the next year, And you make investment decisions based on that. And then they do something else. Did they mislead you? Did they lie? Were they confused? Did things change? There's a whole spectrum of analysis you can do. But if the bank, where people are paid hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars, to know what is the interest rate going to be 12 months from now, and they can't plan, How is anyone in this room supposed to plan their life? How many people bought a house when interest rates were high or low? How many people invested too much money or saved too much? How many people have been on the other side of a negative wage growth for 23 straight months and you're actually getting paid less money today than you were in purchasing power terms literally two years ago? The central bank has two jobs be independent and be predictable and they have failed at both of those and so ultimately if that problem persists and there is no predictability to it you can't trust what they say and so when that happens guess what an entire generation of young people say why would i ever listen to a human what humans lie humans mislead humans don't know how to predict the future So guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do what I do in the rest of my life. I'm gonna trust the computer. I'm gonna trust the algorithm. And if you think about it, you guys do the same thing. Every single one of you Googled something probably in the last 48 hours. You probably trusted the computer to tell you where to go because you went on Google Maps. When you were listening to music, you literally said, hey, algorithm, I'm too dumb to know what music I like. Can you please tell me what to listen to next, right? And you go through your life and you realize you trust the algorithm for everything else that, frankly, isn't nearly as important as the monetary policy that is supposed to protect your wealth. So there's an entire generation of people who just say, no, I'm good. I'm just going to trust this other thing.
0: So for those of us who aren't as educated in monetary policy, inflation, changing rates, I mean, where the theme of what you're saying is, you know, a, an algorithm to decide what the value of money is, um, is, is immutable. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't have that human element to it. Can you like walk us through a scenario of what the world looks like or what the country looks like if we were relying on a currency that was not driven by monetary policy and the government?
1: I don't even have to make it up. I can just go back 50 years, right? We had one. And guess what happened? As productivity rose, wages rose. When you produced more, you got paid more. Makes sense. After we went off the gold standard, productivity continued to rise at the exact same rate. Wages have gone sideways. If you look at the U.S. stock market since 1970s, and you price it, not in dollars, but in gold, the stock market is down. People are literally poorer for investing in American companies than they would have been if they simply had taken their money out of the stock market and bought gold. Think about that, why? Why is it that real estate goes up about 2% a year? Is the house getting more valuable or is it because the denominator of the price, the dollar is being devalued? Same exact thing is if you look at a lot of places of real estate in America, if you denominate the real estate in another asset, not the dollar, Real estate's actually gone down, not up. And so the reason why we don't have to pontificate about some you know, kind of hypothetical, we can just look back is people are actually better off when it comes to their purchasing power, their savings, their wealth creation, their economic mobility, et cetera, in a system where they do not lose value of the dollar. I have this saying that I always say that frankly just pisses off uh, uh, all the people who disagree with me but it is a financial death sentence to save money in America. It is a financial death sentence. You are guaranteed to lose, right? The official inflation number three years after the pandemic started is 6%. We've been compounding inflation at a three times higher level for three years now than what the Federal Reserve's inflation target is. And that's the official number the unofficial number registers anywhere between 9 to 12% today. So, if you go and you take a look at what that means for the average American, if you were sitting with $100 in your bank account in the start of 2020 to today, you can buy the equivalent of about 70 cents worth of goods and services. That's in three years. And guess what? the Fed is not going to get inflation under control. They're going to say, oh, the number is coming down and they're celebrating today because we went from 6.4% to 6%. We're winning. No, they're not. Inflation's up January to February, February to March. So the top line headline number that they're using is falling because of the base effect of last year, but inflation is actually accelerating. The cost of food in America to eat at home has gone up almost 11% in the last 12 months. Last year, it was up about 10% too. So we are now compounding the cost of eating food in your home at nearly double digits for multiple years. What family can do that? America is supposed to be the greatest nation in the world. And over 50% of people who make $100,000 a year report they live paycheck to paycheck. We are the richest broke population in the world, right? Think about that for a second. $100,000 a year or more, and 50% of those people report living paycheck to paycheck. Now, some of it is consumerism, right? And we're buying things we don't need and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of it is there is, you know, two adults, two kids, they live in a house, they have two cars, and they're just trying to live their life. And they're like, hey, I don't have a private jet. I don't go and try to like go on these fancy vacations. I'm just trying to buy food. I'm trying to go to my kid's soccer game and they can't figure it out. And so when you look at that, what it ultimately begs is, do we want to live in a society where teachers go to work, accountants go to work, firemen, policemen, etc., And we say, be great at your job. And at the nights and weekends, go home and become a professional trader because that's the society we live in right now, is if you don't understand how to invest, you are screwed. And so I don't know about you guys, but like, we don't teach personal finance. Nobody knows anything about the markets, including the Federal Reserve, obviously. And so now we have teachers who literally, we want them to become professional investors just so that they can survive. Why don't we just get a different monetary system so that they can simply save their way to financial security?
0: Yep. I wanna take some questions from the audience for a second. I have a question for you that's kind of... Okay. Are you gonna run for office sometime? No, fuck no. <laughs> I'm getting that vibe, no. kind of.
1: <laughs> no, look, it, it, it's, it's important, uh, uh, I have a theory that uh, uh, anyone who wants to run for politics probably shouldn't be a politician, but that's all another thing. Um, if, you, if you think about what has made America great, it's individuals who believed in the idea of America. Right? Like, that, like that's ultimately all it is. And if you think about today, people are condemned for trying to embrace these ideas. If you go on Twitter right now and you tweet things that would be pro-American views of the world, literally people will say all kinds of crazy stuff. And I just think that like we are better off if people say, no, this is important. These are the ideas that we have uh, and we want to preserve them. And like, if people don't like it, like too bad. But guess what? there's millions of people who want to move to this country and there ain't that many people that want to leave. Right. And so like, I just tend to think that, um, people actually have a lot of these ideas and thoughts and they talk about them in private, but they don't want to say them publicly until they see other people saying them publicly and like, Oh, okay. It's okay to say this. And I think that, just more and more people talking about it. The more that you normalize ideas, that actually, like, we should be very focused on making sure that the average American is financially healthy, so that we can have a great country.
0: Yeah, and part of what Investnet does. So, Investnet's technology has um, about a hundred thousand plus financial advisors that utilize, you know, our, our software, our technology. And um, we do integrate with some cryptocurrency custodians so advisors can buy cryptocurrency for their clients, but what we were really missing, which um, Pomp has helped us deliver, is education and exactly that, getting that information out to financial advisors who can then talk to their clients about responsibly investing and diversifying and when crypto makes sense. But all of these points you know there, there is a mistrust that's been built up in the crypto industry and you know it's, it's kind of happened more so recently um and so i think many financial advisors are in kind of a wait and see pattern right they're they're trying to figure out will the crypto industry recover from this will it stick will it move forward and education is really everything to them right now how to understand what's happening and how to talk to their clients about what's happening So that's, you know, our position is bringing them that information um, with your help, of course, has been the best thing for them. What advice would you give to financial advisors who are now fielding questions from their clients or who are, you know, sitting in cryptocurrency allocations?
1: Yeah, it's scary to be a financial advisor who has a bunch of things going on. You're dealing with your clients. You've got to learn about all these new things. You got the regulation stuff, all that. And then your client's asking you about, you know, I, I know one financial advisor who he doesn't really pay attention to crypto at all. And he's like, dude, uh, uh, my clients are asking me about staking. What the hell is staking? Right. Like, yeah, I'd be scared. Crazy. And, and the hard part from what uh, a lot of these advisors have told me is like, you don't want to sound like you don't know, but you also are scared of saying something and being wrong. Right, it's like think about you're talking to someone who knows more about it than you probably do. So how do you really engage? And I think that's where advisors are just like, hey, if I could learn about this, then I could have a point of view. If I have a point of view, then all I want is my client to understand like I care, I'm learning, um, and you can come to me with this stuff, so I can continue to have trust with that client. Uh, Because what people, you know, we can talk about innovation, technology, whatever. This is a people's business, right? And those relationships end up actually being the most important part for most advisors.
0: Yep, agreed. Thank you. Do we have some questions from the audience? Oh boy, a bunch. <laughs> All right, so somebody's going to come around with a microphone. We'll take the first one um, over, over here.
1: Hi there. Yeah. My name is Alex, and uh, God help me, I'm a crypto lawyer. Uh, if you could wave a wand and make one legal change that you think would improve and help address the problems that you're discussing, what what would you do? Okay do you want to answer?
0: I would appoint a regulating body perhaps give the responsibility to someone at the very least.
1: Yeah. I think that's pretty good. Like have the regulators agree on who would oversee it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Number one. I think there's probably two. Um, for me, one is, uh, I think the tax treatment is like pretty erroneous. And so like, could they figure out a way again, it's not, um, Hey, have no tax treatment. Right. I think it's more so just like put the tax treatment on par with other currencies, right, for Bitcoin specifically, I think would be a pretty fair um, way to view it. And it's like if it is a currency, then just treat it like a currency and whatever those rules are, uh, it kind of succumbs to. Um, And then I think that there is uh, a whole nother uh, thing. One of the is a little bit crypto related, but but it applies to other things. I've always thought there should be a regulation that politicians should have to take a multiple choice quiz before they're allowed to regulate on something, and if they fail the test, they have to abstain from the regulation, right? And like, I mean, literally three questions, five questions, whatever, right? But like, how do we make sure that the people who are creating the rules are informed? Now that's like kind of a funny way to do it. but. If you could somehow enforce the fact that like they have learned about this, they have read about it, I actually feel pretty confident they'll come up with like again fair, rational, kind of clear, thought out uh, regulation. The 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 fear or the threat is that you have people who read a headline and then they go in and they vote and then they're. Don't even understand what they're really voting for and i think that's how you get like some pretty erroneous and, and kind of aggressive uh, regulations so if you could fix that in some way a quiz would be funny but uh maybe some other m- more intelligent way to do it
0: not just for crypto for no, 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 ev- everything for everything
1: <laughs> like my two my two things with politicians is like it you shouldn't be able to regulate the industries that put you in office right so if like more than 50 percent of your money came from the healthcare industry you're not allowed to vote on healthcare stuff Right, or, or some version of that, and then also like you should have to take a quiz. Yeah.
0: Next question. Thanks. Um, can you talk about banks and specifically the retail sector for um, individual investors and being able to offboard into fiat and where you think that's going, because it doesn't seem like it's democratizing to me. It seems the opposite. As, as well, discuss the banks that failed and
1: how crypto companies are gonna be able to move forward. Yeah, I thought we were gonna get away with not talking about this. No, no, I'll talk about it. That's fine. Um, so let's talk about the banks that failed first. I think it's probably the easiest thing. So Silvergate uh, didn't fail. I think it's like the first thing. Very counter to the public narrative, but like, They got to a point where they said, hey, we don't have enough money to run operations with confidence. So we are just going to unwind. We're going to liquidate our assets voluntarily and we're going to return money to depositors. No one will lose your money. Your money's not at risk. Shareholders will get whatever the value is of the assets we liquidate. Um, And kind of, it's like a business shutting down, right? Now, in some people's eyes, like they failed because they're not running the business anymore, but they didn't fail in the sense of like receivership, FDIC having to step in, et cetera. The dirty secret is it had nothing to do with crypto. So everyone that is pointing and saying, oh, the crypto bank, the crypto bank, this is like literally we threw like a fastball down the middle, right, uh, for politicians and they're hitting it out of the park, right? Frankly, like give them kudos for what they're doing um, because they're seizing an opportunity. But again, Silvergate got in trouble because they bought U.S. Treasuries that were long duration. There's a duration mismatch. Interest rates got jacked up. The Federal Reserve's more at fault for Silvergate or the risk management team at Silvergate on the treasury team, right? Then anything to do with crypto. Nobody cares about the facts. It's just going to be crypto bank failed. Crypto's risky, all that stuff, right? Okay. Silicon Valley banks, like pretty similar story has nothing to do with crypto has nothing to do with any of this stuff. It's all treasury and duration mismatch, uh, bank run, you know, venture capital, all this stuff. Um, they don't even really bank a lot of crypto companies actually. Like, like that's the other thing is that, they bank some, but like they weren't nearly as uh, embracing of it as, let's say, a Silvergate or whatever. Um, but politicians again jumping on the bandwagon, like, oh, it's because they touched crypto, right? Uh, Signature Bank, like, you guys can write this down and hold on to this one for next two years. I think that Signature Bank will end up leading to a huge scandal in American politics, and likely there will be a number of people punished for what happened there. Um, It appears, based on what we know so far, that the bank had no liquidity issues. They were not bankrupt. They did not even have massive duration mismatch that would have put the bank in trouble. Instead, it appears that the government decided to take over a private company, wipe the shareholders and bondholders, and just hand it to the FDIC. And even the FDIC has reportedly said... They were shocked when it happened because they didn't see a risk. And so uh, Barney Frank from the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, he is on the board, uh, a former congressman, and he was quoted as saying, uh, I think they just wanted to send an anti-crypto message. Again, go back to those American values. Like, that sounds like a huge problem if that's what they did. So again, we'll see. Um, And so when you look at those three banks, like, Nothing to do with crypto. Like crypto actually wasn't the, the problem, right? Um, now, to be fair to I think the critics of the crypto industry, like FTX had problems, right? Three year Capital had problems. So, like it's not like crypto is good, everything else is bad, right? Or vice versa. There, there's a lot of nuance here, um, but I do think that what we find in the crypto world is like there isn't the fractional reserve system, and ultimately, if you boil down to first principles, what is the problem that all these banks are having? fractional reserve system that is duration mismatch. And so is it duration mismatch that we should solve? Or is it actually fractional reserve part that we should solve? People will debate that. Um, but I think Bitcoin specifically was created to solve the fractional reserve problem. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I think I'm somewhat of a realist. If you go back again, you know, go back to the 1940s or whatever. Would the United States have had as much economic dominance and growth as it has had, you know, over the last even 100, 150 years if we didn't have fractional reserve banking, if we didn't have a credit system and all of that? We don't get to run that experiment, right? We don't, we don't know the answer to that question. Um, but would we have as much volatility in the market? Would we have the big drawdowns? Would we have the big, you know, financial crisis? Strong argument, probably not. And so, you know, it's kind of the like old question of like, how high are you worried about? Or how low are you worried about? And what I think we get now is we get a lot of highs, but we also get these kind of severe uh, drawdowns. And like, you know, I mean, we're all like chilling right now, but the second and third largest banking failures in the United States history happened in the last, you know, five days. And everyone's just kind of like, okay, uh, let me just keep scrolling. What else is on Twitter, <laughs> like, like, it's kind of nuts, you know, how this has happened. Um, but it's still a huge problem. So I, I don't know if the regulators necessarily are gonna change anything. Um, and the last thing I'll say is uh, don't let them gaslight you. Like they just gave a hundreds of billions of dollar bailout to the banks. And it's not about Silvergate, it's not about Signature, it's not about uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Because what they're saying is, hey, if you're a depositor, we're gonna backstop you. We're not gonna use taxpayer money. Instead, we're gonna use this like insurance fund. Great, we, sh- we should celebrate when they do things that are right. But if they let you post collateral at par and not at market value, that's a bailout, (laughs) right? And so the banks right now have over $250 billion of unrealized losses on their balance sheet. And they're just kind of like, eh, not a big deal, just leave it. So the best way to describe it for those that don't understand is like, if you bought your house at for $100 and now the market has come down it's trading at 70, you don't get to go to the bank and be like, hey, I wanna take out a mortgage at a hundred dollar value. They're like, no, your house only worth $70. No, 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 but I bought it at a hundred. It's going to go back up. Like, don't worry about it. Like, that's what the banks are now allowed to do. And so, you know, my question is like, well, if the banks can do it, does that mean we all can do it? Can I show up and go and post treasuries right now at a, you know, 10, 20, 30% discount and say, well, the par value is this, like, give me a loan see any banks offering that. So we got to see. So I think there's a lot of kind of nuance and craziness going on. Um, but I do think restoring confidence, uh, in the banking system is ultimately a good thing. And, um, you know, I'm a big Bitcoin believer, but I'm also, uh, I tend to think that if the, if Bitcoin was to become the global reserve currency in the short term, that would cause so much economic chaos would be required for that to happen. Uh, having Bitcoin would be good, but you probably want to have a gun and like, you know, uh, maybe we don't want to live in that world. Like actually having some stability is a good thing. Um, so I don't know, just a couple of thoughts. Question in the back. You didn't want to answer that one?
0: Nope. I have one question. Two more questions. Why do you think most people keep their businesses, keep their goods on
1: home? I'm pretty sure I can. Can you hear me? Yeah,
0: you're good. Yeah, uh, keep it on an uh, exchange as opposed to putting it on a ledger. And then the second one is XRP, is the government really involved because of it being a security or is it just to replace because it's a a threat to
1: replace the system, you know, and so they can interfere, I guess, with the what do you think on that? There's always one person that's got to ask me about it. (laughs) Uh, Let me answer the first part. (laughs) Um, Why do people not work out? right? Why do people uh, eat McDonald's rather than go home and cook a meal that takes 45 minutes is healthier? People are lazy, right? And so for most people, uh, I think it falls into two camps. They'll leave their crypto on the exchanges because they're lazy, right? They don't want to do the extra step. They don't want to have to keep track of the ledger. They don't want to have to keep track of the private uh, keys and all, all these different things. And then the second part is I do think some people are still like nervous or scared, right? They're like, oh man, this is like, kind of technical. This is like a little bit more than my bank account. I just put my money in the bank and it just sits there and like, it's cool. Like I'll just do the same thing here. And so if you think about like, what are some of the challenges for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies right now? Like, I don't know about you guys, but like, I still send transactions. I'm like triple checking, like I'm Sherlock Holmes, right? I'm like, what are the first three letters What are the first four, you know, whatever, trying to make sure that the wallet address is correct right? Because I can't call the, you know, customer service and be like, oh, shit, I I sent the wrong wire. Can you, you know, retract it? Can you do, like, there's none of that. And so I think that ultimately, again, it's self-reliance, it's independence, it's on you. But a lot of people who, "Eh, I don't like that idea, right? Like, it's better when I can call customer service. It's better when you do it for me or whatever. So I think that a lot of that goes into uh, the self-custody. I got no opinion on an XRP. I just, (laughs) uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I was with a guy yesterday who is, you know, they'll prevail. I was with a guy last night. It's not going to (laughs) prevail. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, uh, I think that getting to some clarity, the the one thing I tell everyone is uh, regulatory clarity sounds good. Like as like a marketing slogan, just remember that regulatory clarity is clarity. It's not, they agree with what I think they should do. And so a lot of people want clarity, but I think they say that as a proxy for we want the regulators to agree with us. But if that's what you, like, say that, don't say we want regulatory clarity because a lot of the clarifications that they've provided have actually been not what people wanted. And so I think being able to separate those two is important.
0: Time for one or two more.
1: Okay, I I have seen
0: very few people talking about CBDCs here. I would like to hear your opinion about
1: particularly the problems that these central banks are trying to solve. Do you want to say anything about them?
0: You can go ahead and take it.
1: Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm good on the central bank digital currencies. Um, so in 2019, I think it was, I went on CNBC and they asked me, like, if, if you're the United States, what would you do right now to ensure, like, the dollar continues to be the dominant uh, global reserve currency? I said, digitize the dollar, right? And the thought process is: if you're in, take a uh, take Venezuela as an example. Local currency fails. You actually want dollars. You don't want Bitcoin. You don't want gold. You don't. Want, you want dollars, right? Dollars are liquid. They ha- are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. They've been pretty stable. Like all the, they're accepted globally. All this stuff. The problem becomes you can't get dollars right? You're worried about trying to go to the bank and get them because at any point the government can come and just confiscate it from you. It's super expensive and very dangerous for you in the uh, kind of black market to go get uh, uh, dollars. And then also if you're walking around with physical dollars, it's very difficult and and, uh, there's a security concern. And so what you naturally do is you say like, what can I do on the internet where I can have some level of sovereignty? Well, if you get on the internet and you're like, well, this Bitcoin thing is too volatile. I don't know anything about that. But oh, China they have a digital currency. You know what? Eh, US, China, is all they're all big countries. Like, I'll just buy that one, right? By China digitizing their currency faster than the United States, you could actually drastically increase accessibility for people around the world to adopt the currency, and therefore you kind of get out ahead of, let's say, the United States. So that was like the pro argument. It was like, digitize the dollar, allow for global accessibility, continue to be that dominant uh, reserve currency. Now, the dark side of it there's some that are easy, right? The surveillance stuff, obviously, where uh, they'll be able to see right now, rather than go and get um, the uh, what was it FISA court, if you can go and you can basically say, "Hey, this person, we think they committed some crime, we want to see what's in their bank account, what their transactions are." The court, um, you know, they usually approve it, but there's a, a, at least some checks and balances there with a central bank digital currency, they don't need to do that. They can just look at everyone's wallets at all times, right? So there's no kind of cash preservation, uh, mechanism. And they also can see who you're transacting with when, what amounts, what time, all that. Uh, then there's like the social credit system risk, which is like, yeah, super healthy. So you know what, like you can't take an Uber to the movies, you gotta walk. Like that probably isn't good. Right. And, um, so those are all like known things. The one I'm most worried about though is uh, what I call personalized monetary policy. So like right now, when the Fed increased interest rates from zero to four and a half percent, they did it for all of us. It was one size fits all, right? When you have a central bank digital currency, like you've been a bad boy. You get 7% interest rate. You've been good. You get zero. You're in the middle. You get two and a half percent. Like, What does that world look like? right? And so like, if there's one thing that central banks have proven over and over again, so when we give them more technology, they abuse it, right? And so a central bank digital currency allows for this personalized monetary policy that like, it's just scary to think about. But on top of that, we don't know what the ramifications are, right? What happens if you take what is now a nation state action, you push it down and it's personalized, like kind of nuts. And so I do think they will happen. Uh, no matter how hard we yell, scream, fight, whatever. Um, and I think it's just up to the individuals. Like, do you use them or not? Now the you know, will they always keep physical cash? Will they allow you to use the electronic system rather than the digital central bank currency? I don't know how it plays out, but um, they can't digitize real estate, right? They can't digitize certain assets. And so there, there's alternative options it's just like, central bank digital currency is like a cool name. Sounds awesome, right? <laughs> so do a lot of other things that end up getting abused. And I think that the best thing we can do right now is just like make sure people are aware of uh, what the downsides are.
0: It's a good thing I didn't answer. I was gonna say exactly the same thing. So <laughs> I think we're out of time for questions. So thank you guys so much. You've been an excellent audience and- Thank you. Thank you.
1: you did a great job.